just sounds strange saying those two words or really pairing one word with the other. Ugly Christmas just doesn't seem right. And we know that, you know, ugliness is much of the time in the eyes of the beholder for a cross stitch. Is that what that is? That's a cross stitch. Or is it, uh, is it weaving? It's not a tapestry. Whatever that is up there, it's cross stitch. Some people may say, that's not what I would have expected. Or they may say, that's not what I would hang in my home. But when we think of Christmas, the word ugly to describe it is perfect. Let's take a little trip to the dictionary for just a moment. If you were to look up ugly in Webster's Dictionary, you will find that it is an adjective. It can mean one of several things. They're printed right up there. Unpleasant, morally offensive, alarming, hostile, horrible, unlovely. Take your pick. Ugly is a word that pretty much covers a wide range of emotions and descriptions. So why in the world would we want to take these weeks of Advent, these weeks of the Christmas season, and dare to call them ugly? Well, we've already seen some Well, we've already seen an ugly sweater. I think Ray wore it well. And by the way, Ray, that's not yours to keep. Bring it back when we're done. You've got ugly sweaters. Matter of fact, there is a a, a TV entertainment show, The Tonight Show, Jimmy Fallon, and they will give away an ugly Christmas sweater every night of the Christmas season. Many of you may have seen that in years past. And it's probably one of the most coveted pieces of clothing that you could ever own. People just fight over and hope that their name is drawn to be able to wear this year's or that day's Christmas ugly sweater. But that's not what we're talking about in these weeks. You've also got ugly decorations. Now, once again, this is an opinion. What may seem ugly to one may seem beautiful or perfect to someone else. That's really not the point. But you'll have to admit, and I don't mean to be stepping on any toes here, but some people leave their Christmas lights up all year long. And I've often wondered, is it... It's probably laziness. They just don't want to get up there and remove them or pull them down. Then again, it could be something totally unrelated to being lazy. It could be the simple fact that they love the lights. But you'd have to admit that in mid-August, to see the reindeer and Santa, whatever the case may be, especially if they're the blow-up kind, it just isn't, it isn't lovely. Matter of fact, I just call it downright ugly. Then you've got the ugly P 
people. Got to be careful here. Ugly people. And I'm not talking about physical appearance here. I'm not talking about pointing fingers at anyone here and saying, boy, I wish you looked better than you do. I'm talking about ugly people against the pages of Scripture. Ugly, not meaning horrible. Ugly, not meaning alarming. Hostile, perhaps. More the fact that ugly when it refers to the people, the characters, the cast of the story, the facts of the Christmas story. It really, in my mind, is the unexpected or the unlovely. Think about it for just a moment. You move through those passages of the Christmas story, which if you don't know, you'll find that they're only, you're only going to find the Christmas story in two of the four Gospels, Matthew and Luke. Mark is in such an all-fired hurry to tell the story of salvation that he skips Christmas altogether. When Mark's gospel begins, Jesus is 30 years old. He's standing in the River Jordan, and he's being baptized by John the Baptist. And then we zip through 16 chapters till we come to its end. John, he tells his version of the Christmas story, but boy, is it unusual. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18 is many times called the prologue of John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And those 18 verses tell the story of the coming, the advent of the Savior, but in a way unlike the other two guys. For Matthew... And Luke, both found in chapter 2 of their respective works, tell the story that we hear every time we think of Christmas. But the people involved, the cast of characters involved, I hope you're following our readings. If you're not, you can pick up a hard copy in one of the info centers or just go on and register your email through our subscription service and we will send you those devotional thoughts that carry on the theme of Ugly Christmas. And this first week's readings that we conclude today, eyeball, take into account all of those ugly characters, people, ugly folks that God saw something beautiful in each and every life. The story of Christmas rightfully begins with a character that you wouldn't really think of at Christmas, Zechariah. Oh, he's over there. He, he's, he's told, or his story is told in that first chapter of Luke. He was the eventual father of John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of Jesus. But it was with Zechariah and his wife that the actual story of the Savior came to fruition. And who would have thought to use an old geezer like Zechariah to announce to the world that the promised Savior would come? Unexpected, unlovely, ugly. Then you have Mary, and once again, I always picture her as a beautiful young lady, 
I always picture her poised and ready. But then again, if you really read deeply into her story, you will find that she was a young girl who was scared to death. Her situation was serious. Her situation broke all of the moral laws of her society. To be expecting a child. To be betrothed and promised to a husband-to-be. And then for all of this to come about. Unexpected. In a sense, this makes Christmas just a tad ugly. You throw into that Joseph. Joseph, the young man who was taken by Mary, who followed all of the rules of decorum and all of the legal steps to claim her as his own, to step out and to pledge his love in a betrothal, an engagement, not really like our engagement period today. There was no save the date. And that's what makes it just a little bit ugly. Because I imagine when Joseph got up that morning and looked at his reflection and whatever they used for mirrors back in that day and time, that all he saw was something, someone ugly. He didn't point his anger at Mary. But you can't help but think that he looked within his own self and asked this question. What did I do? I mean, I've followed all of the rules and the regulations, and I've been faithful, and I've done everything I've been asked to do. And no, I'm not perfect, he might have said, but I certainly don't deserve this embarrassment. Ugly, isn't it? But it doesn't stop with Zechariah or Mary or Joseph, but the the unloveliness, the ugliness of the whole situation for me is wrapped up in that unnamed guy who's called the innkeeper. Have you ever rented a room through Airbnb? Similar. Marcy and I have tried it several times. We've generally had good luck with Airbnbs, but it's simply where you're renting someone's personal residence or apartment, or it's supposed to be theirs. So you're breaking away from the major chains, and you're not staying in a fancy hotel, but you're experiencing life on the street just as it's supposed to be experienced in someone's property, an Airbnb. You you actually purchase it sight unseen. You can see some pictures, but pictures can be very deceiving. For instance, a ginormous loft apartment in Manhattan. It's about this big. But this unnamed innkeeper, he didn't. He found himself in a a very awkward situation. I mean, his, all of his lodging, all of his places to bed down for the night were taken. You remember, this was a time when people were returning to their 
home base, their ancestral home, their hometown for the purpose of paying a tax. So you've got that joy on the expression. The expression on everyone's face is one of joy because they're getting to come back home and pay their tax for the year. So you can see how things are fairly uneasy, how things might turn hostile quickly. And yet here comes knocking upon the door a young man and his obviously expectant wife. And what does he have to offer them? Really nothing. He probably considered the barn, the stable, the feeding trough, nothing. He didn't consider it anything. This ugly. Add to that shepherds. Shepherds who, if you were going to announce the coming king of kings, the savior of the world, the ultimate manifestation of God's power and presence, would you have used these teenage boys? That's probably how old they were. Who spent their livelihood, spent every day taking care of the sheep, making sure they were counted, making sure that they were as clean as they possibly could be, making sure that they didn't cross property lines, making sure, making sure, making sure. You certainly wouldn't pick that bunch because really, when you say ugly, you just need to say it just was smelly. Just doesn't add up. The best way to describe it it's just ugliness. Now, those wise guys, the magi, those kings, now remember, we don't know whether there was one, two, three, or more. By the fact that they brought gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, tradition has always said there was not one, not two, but three of these astrologers, these very intelligent scholars. Tradition has even given them names, first names. Balthazar, Melchor, I can't even remember the other one. I could just say a name and you wouldn't know any different. <laughs> Troy was his name. <laughs> they kind of dress up the entire scene. But then again, they really don't. Because their entire story is based upon looking for something beautiful looking for the place where a star would lead that a, pl- a star would lead them to but yet having to get clearance and go through customs of that part of the world which meant they had to deal with Herod Herod the scripture calls him excuse me history calls him the great he was far from being great He's called great because he was the one who probably accounted for the, accounted for most of the violence, the atrocities, the murders. I mean, here's a guy that married more than once. That's not the issue. He had many children, but when he grew to distrust a few of his sons and one of his wives, he just had them massacred. He died a horrible death, history tells us. And most of us would go, so what? 
What does it matter? Herod the great? No, Herod's not the great. Herod is the ugly. He's the ugliest of all, we might say. He was mean, violent, self-serving, ugly. The epitome of hostility. So you've got all of these characters, all of these, if you want to call them cast members, who what? Do they help the situation? No. They just put the stamp of ugliness over everything. Unlovely, unexpected. Totally out of sync with what we're looking for. But then you come to the ugliest of them all. His story is told in the Gospels. I mean, he's the reason for the season. Wise men still seek him. You've got all of those themes that churches have pounced upon, and I've been a part of them. They're all catchy, and they all speak to the point. They talk about Jesus, the Son of God, the King of Kings, the Savior of the world. But centuries before he ever was born in that feeding trough and placed there, it was Isaiah the prophet in the 53rd chapter of his prophecy that spoke about an unnamed servant of God. And Christianity from the get-go, rightfully so, has taken those descriptions, that, those words, that word picture, that glimpse of that suffering servant I've given you a hint there, suffering, ugly, unbecoming. We've taken that passage and we put Jesus' face and Jesus' name and Jesus' life all over it. Let's give it a close look. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 through 6. Who has believed our message, Isaiah says, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Right there from the get-go. What do we know? We know that Isaiah is about to tell us that what he is about to say, what he is about to tell us is a surprise. Because everyone overlooked it. Everyone missed the point. That's why he asked those questions. He knows the answer to them. Who has believed our message? No one To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's been revealed to no one who understood what the very arm and the power, and that's what that symbolizes. It symbolizes the might of a king, the might of an empire. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? No one. For why? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. I mean, Isaiah hit the nail on the head. He pictures this servant of God, this Savior, as a fragile individual. Growing up as a a tender shoot, referring to not a branch, but just the beginning of a bud. No appearance that we would take a second look at. 
ugly, unexpected, not lovely at all. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem for that last week of his life, we call it Palm Sunday. You remember how he came, don't you? He came on the back of a donkey. He came with the palm leaves spread across his way. But no one understood why he did that in the way he did. No one interpreted his acts as that of a king. It's the very opposite. Ugly. Out of sync. Out of touch. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. I mean, if you want to sum up Isaiah 53, 3 with one word, I'll give you one. Ugly. Isn't that just what he described? I mean, he didn't use the word. He didn't need to use that word. He wanted to overstate his case. He said, you looked upon this person, this individual, and what did you see? You saw nothing worthwhile. It was despicable. Ugly. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. See, that gives us a picture of the Jew in the 8th century B.C. as well as the Jew in the 1st century. When they looked at this individual, when they looked at Jesus, they determined that everything he was suffering, he brought upon himself. He was God's whipping post, if you will. He was getting everything he deserved. We totally misunderstood the passage. Isaiah is trying to tell us that this suffering servant is dying in our place. He's dying for our sin. But what did we do? What are we doing even today by our lack of commitment? What are we saying? We're saying that everything that's happened here was his fault. It was all, he was suffering for his own sins. He was smitten of God. God is punishing him. We missed the point. We missed the point. Why? Because all we see is ugliness. He was pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, you may want to insert the word, his stripes, referring to the stripes that are left after you have been hit by a whip and it tears your skin. By his scourging, his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. The words of Scripture. The words of Scripture that a composer has taken and put to music. Handel's Messiah. But I can't read these words without those melodies, without that music, without the majesty of that going through my mind each and every time. Because what did Handel see as he composed his work and that section of it that we call the Messiah? 
He saw beauty. He saw the miraculous. He saw salvation. He saw love. Whereas all we could see was ugliness. Folks, what we've got to see in these weeks, and we may see it, we may not. I mean, how many of us have had umpteen years to catch a glimpse of what's really in these passages? We have to find a way to transform what is messy into what is magnificent. Because that's exactly what God has done through His Son, Jesus. The ugliness that we want to attach to just about everything we see is not just pessimism. It's blindness. It's what sin has done and jaded each and every one of us. And what we have to do is we have to make a concerted effort to do what must be done to cut through what others say is ugly and to see what is truly miraculous and beautiful in it. So I ask you to remember a couple of thoughts. Commitment always carries with it a cost. Always. You go through every one of those characters that we surveyed just a few minutes ago and those ones who made their commitment to do God's will Did they all of a sudden become beautiful? No. Did they all of a sudden become wealthy? Far from it. Did they all of a sudden become the next candidate who would win any election? Hardly. Their commitment cost them dearly. And maybe the reason we can't see past what we would say is the ugly side of everything is because we're not willing to step out in faith. We haven't in the past, and there's no reason to in the future. No one can convince us otherwise. And that's true. No one can. But God, through His Word, He is the only one who can take us down that road of commitment and help us to see the value and the surpassing greatness of all He has to offer us. And I would ask you to remember this. Remember that love is first and foremost a choice. We've turned love into I love scrambled eggs. Or I like this or that. And we've totally diluted what the word means, what the concept means, what the, excuse me, commitment means. And love, first and foremost, has always been and always will be a choice, not an emotion. Does love cause emotion? Yes. Is emotion a part of life? Who are we kidding? Absolutely. But is love at its basic root substance. Is it emotion? No. It's choice. It's an old geezer saying, yes, Lord, you have shut my mouth and for a purpose, and I will serve you. 
Love is a young woman and a young man who looked beyond themselves and realized that their love for one another could go a bad direction, but they chose to honor God. And you just go all the way down through the list of those in the Christmas story and you will find love. God's choosing to stay with us and his son's choosing to die for us. So is Christmas really best described as ugly? Perhaps that word is perfect if it drives us and pushes us toward what is beautiful. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to gather here, call upon your name, to read from your word, to glean its meaning, to offer songs of praise and to... to be here with one another. Father, help us to commit, count the cost, and to let love be seen in our choices. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We wrap up this hour the way we always do. (laughs) Many of you know the drill. I don't mean to call it that. But we wrap up a time like this acknowledging that God has given us the opportunity to hear his word. And now that we've heard, we're given the opportunity to choose and respond. Sometimes responses can be just right where you are. And many times, week in and week out, I think people settle their issues spiritually with God right where they stand. But sometimes decisions are those that need to be made public. And by that, I mean before the world. You say, well, how do I do that? Before a church congregation, before a family that gathers here. If you're here today and you've never asked Jesus to come into your life to save you from your sin, to be the leader of your life, if you've never stepped across that line of faith, for that's what it is. And those terms can get confusing, but they're really very just basic choices. We'd ask you to come forward. Ministers and deacons will be here to assist, to pray with you, to guide you. There are no secret disciples that we find in the Scripture. Well, there was one named Nicodemus. I'll take that back. But he finally got the courage to profess his faith a little later on. So that's why we would ask for those who choose to follow Jesus to make a public stand of their faith. So we invite you to come. Maybe you're here today and you know the Lord, but just never followed him in obedience in what we call believer's baptism. There's a lot to talk about there because there's water up there. And we do that and we immerse converts, followers of Jesus in water because that's what his command to us is, to identify with him. We see it as a symbol. And if that's something you want to talk about, discuss, follow through with, come forward. Joining our church may be exactly what you've come here to do today. You need a church family. You need a a place to call your own. Here we are. How do you join a church like ours? A step forward, a commitment, a coming forward so that we can encourage you. So we invite you to join our church in that way today. Whatever the need may be. And if that word ugly just kind of 
makes you feel uncomfortable, good. Take it for what it is and walk out of here serving him in these coming days. That's our invitation. We stand together. We sing as God leads. You step out and come right now.